0: Well, everyone, we are back for another episode of Beyond the Whistle. This will be episode 14, and we're joined by a very special guest today. It is the Giants athletic writer Dan Duggan. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. So I'm Dylan Pescatore, as you guys know. I'm joined by Ian Nicholas and Cortland Parrott. You guys, we are ready for episode 14, and let's start off with a question on everyone's mind. Dan, how are you doing through these tough times with the pandemic going on?
1: Uh doing pretty well. As I told you guys before we start recording, I'm doing this in my bathroom because my uh, two-year-old daughter's napping. So trying to uh, keep it quiet in a two-bedroom apartment. But uh, otherwise, everything's going pretty well. I mean, she's a uh, work-from-home experience a little bit different, but uh, it's been a lot of fun, really. Uh, so there has been some some silver linings to it.
2: And you've covered as uh, like we were talking about before. You cover mostly the Giants. Um, But we want to go back. What got you into journalism and sports? What was
1: that early age like? Man, you have to go, like, all the way back. I think journal from first grade was, like, uh, you know, an early foray into sports writing. You know, every other kid was probably writing about their favorite toy, and I was writing about, like, detailed breakdowns of the Celtics game that I watched (laughs) the night before, the Red Sox game. I grew up in Boston. Um, So, yeah, so it was always kind of – Always super, super into sports, and, you know, probably at some point in maybe high school or maybe a little earlier, I realized probably wasn't going to become a professional athlete, mm-hmm. and uh, so sort of just married the two where I was, you know, a pretty good writer and liked doing that, loved sports, so I just figured if I couldn't play him, uh, writing about him was the next best thing.
3: So yeah, Nan, that's what you did. You went to UMass at Amherst. You stayed in Massachusetts, and after there, you you know you you grew. You uh, wrote for the Boston Herald, and as well as the New York Times to start your career as a freelance writer. So, what was that moment like when you were uh, first starting out your career writing for the biggest paper in Boston, in your hometown, and uh, covering sports, which seems like you know a win-win for what you wanted to do with your career.
1: Yeah, no, it was it was a great opportunity. I actually, um, I worked with the student newspaper at UMass, and um, just kind of got lucky, which is if you you know to go through my story or whatever, you're gonna find that to be the case uh, a lot of times. Uh, you know, timing is everything. And um, my senior year at UMass in the spring, I actually wanted to cover the baseball team because I was more of a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. But my friend Jeff Howe, who is actually covers the Patriots for the Athletic. Um, he had covered the lacrosse team the year before, and he was like, Listen, the lacrosse team is way better to cover. Baseball plays like double headers all weekend. You'd be at the field, like, you know, a senior year in college, you don't spend like 15 hours a weekend watching kind of crappy A 10 baseball. Uh, so he's like, the Lacrosse team is good. Just trust me. They play like once on Saturday afternoon. It's, it's a much, you know, I didn't know anything about the sport at all. I kind of jumped on, and he, he helped me learn the ropes. And she just got fortunate that. They went on a run to the national championship, which was like totally unprecedented. I mean, it's always like the same four teams, and uh, somehow UMass broke through that year. And it just worked out that I had sort of been in, you know, very you know loose contact with the Herald my senior year. You know, like everyone trying to line something up, and yeah. I just asked if they wanted me to freelance the uh, Final Four and the national championship game for them. And, you know, they kind um, of they weren't going to send down to Philly to cover the lacrosse Final Four, um, but since I was already going and paying my we're happy to uh throw me a few bucks and more importantly for me it was just kind of get a little exposure and get my foot in the door and um so i didn't you know i graduated spring of 2006 and then the uh fall of 2006 uh, i got hired just lowest man on the totem pole i was my first gig was just answering the phone on friday nights taking high school football scores um but again that was just a foot in the door And just kind of carved out a niche, Um, like the first assignment I had was covering the UFC. I did a notebook every other Sunday, just like lacrosse. I knew nothing about the UFC, but they offered it. So I accepted it and uh, became an expert as fast as I could. And then just really filled in the blanks because, you know, newspapers um, obviously were kind of short staffed uh, in the last decade and only gets worse. So anytime they needed somebody, I would just, you know, kind of step up and by the end of my time, there was there six years, uh, I was really sort of like the utility man. Like I would go season to season as the extra guy, would, you know, go from the Celtics to the Red Sox to the Patriots and just always be like the third or fourth guy when you know, if someone had a day off that need someone to step in. Uh, that was kind of my role. So uh, it was really about just, you know, getting opportunities. It didn't hurt that the Boston teams were very successful during that stretch. So it got me a little more exposure and I was able to uh, make some connections just by sharing press rooms with some you know, national people and whatnot. But um, yeah, it was really just, uh, like I said, with timing and, and just, you know, working hard and um, was able to just sort of carve out, carve out my own niche and sort of, you know, break through a little bit um, in the six years I was there.
0: We always hear about taking every opportunity that is presented. And after your six years, you move to New York. We always hear about the Boston-New York sports rivalry. Is there a, a, a change? We always hear about how the New York media, <clears throat> excuse me, New York media is so you know, judged, and there's a different culture around there. Did you feel that when you moved from Boston to
1: New York? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think if I moved from, you know, Oklahoma City or even like L.A. or something, you might feel it. But Boston's pretty intense and pretty crazy. It's a little bit different because in Boston, you know, there's only the one team in every sport. So everyone is – you're a Patriots fan, you're a Celtics fan, you're a Red Sox fan. It's a little different here where there's divides. I mean, there's people in New York who, like, hate the Giants or hate the Yankees. You know, obviously in Boston, you don't get that. So it's it's almost – I would say it's more passionate than Boston, but it's, everyone is just locked in to your team. Like, again, there's people who don't even probably care about the Giants in you know my backyard here, which is kind of interesting. Um, but no, I mean, they're both super intense. You probably throw Philly in there. Like, those three markets uh, are all pretty crazy. I don't know if I would, you know, I haven't had a ton of exposure to Philly, but from everything I've seen and heard, it definitely belongs in that conversation. Um, but I wouldn't say that New York has been any uh, different than Boston, especially, you know, when you're talking about, Having all these different teams and almost like the crowds might be bigger in a Patriots locker room on a random Thursday afternoon because it's the only show in town. Whereas here you have you know media, Jets practice, Giants practice, you know the, the two baseball teams. One of them might be playoffs. Um, so yeah, it's I would say it's it's the same. volume obviously because um, you know there is a ton of media down here. We have in Boston was pretty good training ground. It wasn't like I came to New York. I was like, oh wow, this is so intense. And, yeah. you know, God, it was coming from a pretty intense place going a pretty intense place.
2: And you said you grew up in Boston. You were a Boston fan, Red Sox. Myself, I'm a Red Sox fan, Patriots, the Celtics, the whole nine yards. Going to New York, you know, there's always that New York-Boston rivalry. What was your opinion on how covering the teams that, you know, the teams that you're rooting against didn't really like? Was it just the job to you, or was there some kind of like, "Eh, I don't know if I want to do this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's funny. I I always – the example I give to people and that, that kind of clicks for them, because I get that question all the time is like, so when I was the backup guy with the Patriots for a couple of years, I was covering Bill Belichick every day. Like you go to a Bill Belichick press conference every day, that's going to like beat the fan out of you really fast because you ask a question he either mumbles or bites your head off or just, you know, it's not like, oh, this is so fun talking to Bill Belichick. I mean, there's obviously, you know, maybe the first time you were in the locker room, like, you know, Tom Brady or something, that was kind of cool because I was, you know, young enough that I was a fan while he was, you know, winning his first couple of Super Bowls, but yeah, the fandom really gets beaten out of here pretty fast, so uh, definitely when I first came down here, a lot of my friends and family back home like, how can you cover the Giants? Like, they beat the Patriots, but even by the time the Patriots were playing in those Super Bowls, I wasn't, like, a die-hard Patriots fan. You know, I'd rather see the Patriots win the Super Bowl than, like, the Colts, but at the end of the day, if I'm at the game, it, it didn't really matter, so yeah, the Giants, I mean, listen, it's definitely, like, just a job, and I don't I don't say that, like, dismissively because it's a great job, and there's only 32 NFL teams to cover, and uh, you know, they're probably one of the premier ones to cover, so I'm super happy to it, but, um, it, yeah, it doesn't make a difference. If I was covering the Patriots, I wouldn't be rooting for them to win and covering the Giants and I wouldn't lose. I think it's a cliche for, like, reporters to say, like, they don't root, but it, it's really kind of true. Like, it's it just, it just becomes a job. You're dealing with these guys every day. You have interpersonal relationships with some players you like, some players you don't, and it's more based on their personalities than, you know, how they play on the field, whereas a fan, you're just living and dying by, you know, who's a good player, who's, you know, who's a bad player. It's, it's kind of a totally different perspective. Uh, We're in the locker room around these guys all the time. So as a Giants fan myself, you know, I love reading your
3: articles and how in-depth you go. I mean, I know the draft obviously was a big break for sports fans in general. I mean, now you get to write articles about the Giants draft selections and the undrafted free agents for signing. A lot of new talent is coming into a really young and talented team that hasn't had a lot of team success over the years. But I'm just curious, since you are from New England, you are from the Boston area. Can you tell Giants fans anything about uh, new head coach Joe Judge? I mean, he's 38 years old. He was with the, the Patriots from 2012 to 2019. And I know special teams coaches don't get a whole lot of time with the media out there in Boston. Uh, and he's not a big a name like Matt Patricia or Josh McDaniels or Brian Flores that has come out of New England. But can you tell the Giants fans a little bit about the special teams coordinator who will be heading the team whenever we get football back?
1: Well, I mean, it's funny. I think he got hired on January 8th. Um on January 7th, I didn't know a heck of a lot about him. <laughs> uh, I moved down to New York in 2012. And, like, that was his first year in New England, so we barely yeah. overlapped. And certainly as like the third guy in the beat, I wasn't dealing with the special teams coordinator, even if, if we did overlap for you know, a couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's funny. My, one of my first stories I wrote was, like, who is Joe Judge? And I tracked down a bunch of people from his background, you know, coaches who were sort of mentors to him, peers. Um, but it wasn't like that it was just me. I mean, nobody knew who he was. I mean, he, when he, his name came out on the list of candidates, if you were ranking them one to six or seven, however many candidates they had, he was six or seven. I mean, he was really an afterthought, thirty-eight-year-old special teams coordinator. Nobody thought he was going to get the job, and obviously, you know, he blew them away in the interview. Had the recommendations from Belichick and Saban, and now you see how he's, you know, handled his media interviews. You can see why he would have been impressive behind closed doors. I mean, he's definitely a very strong personality. Um, you know, very detail-oriented guy. You hear that, you know, all the time. You can't really get to that level if you're like sloppy. <laughs> but he seems like he's yeah. heightened in terms of that. Like, I, I think that preparation and all that stuff is going to be pretty intense under him. I don't think he's going to run a really relaxed, uh, you know, team. I think it's going to be pretty, pretty business-like. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I've you know, gotten to know him a little bit. I think it'll be different once we actually, hopefully, soon at yeah. some point get around each other every day because. Um, you know, he does an interview here and there, and it's a lot of the same talking points because, I mean, they haven't really done much, you know, talked a little mm-hmm. bit about that, but for the most part, it's just been the same message he gave from his introductory press conference, so we'll get to know him a lot better, I think, once we get into training camp again, presuming we have one, and then the season, I mean, listen, anyone can, can ace the job from January to August, but once the you know bulls start flying in the, in the fall, you find out what the guy's made of, but... Oh. Um, he's been a very impressive uh, to this point, but I certainly can't say that I knew a heck of a lot about him um, you know, more than anyone else did until, until around early January when his name first came on the radar. Yeah, I want to go back
0: to that draft, which was virtual, and really how you've been connecting with the players, how they had their interviews on Zoom, the coach had their interviews on Zoom, we were coming in. How has it been different from just meeting them in person and talking to them? Has it been tough? Has it been hard to get information that
1: sometimes you got last year or years prior? It's funny because really, I mean, there's never a good time for this to happen. But if you're in the NFL, it like kind of happened at the best possible time. It didn't interrupt yes. the season. You know, obviously, if you're talking about you know any of the other major sports. Either the playoffs would be going on right now, or baseball would be starting. Um, so football, like you know, there's all the kind of hand wringing. What should they do? Free agency? Should they do the draft? But I think uh, it was probably the right call because really nothing changed dramatically. I mean, granted the kind of nuts and bolts of how the draft was executed changed, But the same thing happened that happens every other year. It's just the, they were doing it from their home office on Zoom rather than, you know, sitting in a war room and, and making the picks that way. But from my perspective, really nothing has changed drastically yet because, you know, free agency is always done from home. I mean, the, the big difference for me is, like I said, my, my two-year-old's home with me, so I got to try and work during nap time, um, whereas usually it should be a daycare and I'd have eight hours to get stuff done. So that's been a little bit of a challenge. But no, free agency, that's all, you know, over the phone and texting and calling people. Um, the draft, I mean, even that, we go to the facility usually for the draft. We sit in the media room, watch it on TV like everyone else, and then we go down to an auditorium for a press conference. Instead, I watched it at home and jumped on a Zoom call after. So really no, really no different. Um, it'll become more of a difference even now. I mean, there'll be the OTAs and mini camps will be coming up. And you get to those. So you definitely miss some of that. But a lot of that, I mean, in the spring, it's, there's nothing too hard hitting. Once camp starts you know, around you know, the end of July, early August, that's when we'll start to really feel it if uh, if there isn't access. Because uh, see if they have camp, there's probably a pretty good chance they're not gonna do it in daily media. I'm sure they're gonna limit uh, the amount of people they're exposing themselves to. So if we're not there day in and day out, like you are in camp watching practice, talking to players, talking to coaches, then, you know that's how you start to develop relationships and, and really get to know what's going on with the team. That will be a challenge and that, that will be very different. But yeah, I mean honestly, it's you know, we're two, three months into this, it hasn't been that much different just because of the way it fell uh, on the NFL's campaign. Mm -hmm.
2: and you talk a lot about you know talking to players interviewing players and what is a key to someone to asking those good questions that will get the good answers you're looking for do you have any tips or anything like that you can share
1: i mean everyone obviously has their own style so i think that's the first thing you can't try to do it the way someone else does it but i I think the big kind of learn is to not try to ask a good question in a way Like, like it's you want to make things as conversational as possible. So I don't want to like make it I, I, It's tough. when I hear someone like basically read a rehearsed question or read off a notebook. Like, you, you know, you, you should kind of have it be a little more natural because that's how you're going to get a more natural response. Like the question doesn't really matter. I mean, obviously you have to phrase in a certain way or, you know, but it's more what they're going to say back. So there's different ways to go about getting good answer. I think one of the things I've, tried to do and I've learned is actually kind of less is more. Like I hear sometimes a lot of people ask a question and they basically provide the answer they want to hear or they provide two options. Like just ask a question like point blank and, and let them take it from there. Like leave it open-ended rather than trying to like, you, you probably have in your mind a lot of times, I'm going to put this quote in my story right here. It's like, well, then you're just fishing for that quote. You're better off kind of going broad. And then if they answer it a certain way, you can narrow it down with follow-up questions. But I think that's the biggest thing is I try not to, i mean you gotta think you gotta put you gotta do the research and you to know, talk to somebody i am going gonna the research beforehand but once we start talking i'll have some notes jotted down just so i don't you know i'm gonna miss a topic or forget you know oh, i want to ask him about this but i think the best way to do it is just make it natural and uh and so sort of free-flowing you know like the way we're talking now you're gonna get better answers from someone if it's a little com- more comfortable than if you just like we're reading question one question two question three if they're not listening i think that's the biggest thing you have to listen to what the person saying that's something i always find myself doing because i have those little notes like oh i want to ask him about this meanwhile he's saying something and i listen back oh man i kind of missed that he said this one little nugget that i wish i followed up on i think listening is really more important than actually you know how you you know phrase the question or, or the way you ask a question so i guess
3: to follow up to that over your years covering the giants who are some of the guys big names or smaller names on the roster that you've had the most fun talking to who are like the most approachable guys that you've built a good chemistry with over the years that you just appreciate, you know, sitting down and talking football with? Them.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I will say that, you know, they've had a pretty good locker room in my time, even though it's changed a lot. And obviously, it's made our gentleman has tried to bring in a lot of, you know, high-character guys. And that's, you know, that's been the case. There really hasn't been any problems. And obviously, it was the 2017 year where, where things went sideways. But, um, you know, so there's definitely some guys I wouldn't put on the list of you know, my favorites. But, uh, as far as the guys I really liked, I mean, Landon Collins probably stands out as the best because the way it works in the NFL is certain players only have to talk once a week. Like Odell uh-huh. had that
0: treatment.
1: Saquon sort of has that treatment now. Quarterbacks a lot of times will have that. Although Eli was a little more, I uh, did a little extra. But for the most part, like the biggest stars are like once a week guys. I mean, Landon Collins was in the defensive player of the year running that uh, 2016 season as a pro yep. bowler. He was a four times a week guy. He was there every time you needed him. Wow. He'd always stand up, be accountable. And, like, he's gotten himself into trouble. I know Giants fans have kind of turned on him. And, he's, you know, he, the thing is he's just unfiltered. So when he's on your team, you like it. But now he's in Washington and he's taking shots at Gettleman. I understand why Giants fans don't like it. But, again, to the fan part of the question earlier, as a media member, I just want guys who are honest. I don't want the canned answers and stuff. So he was always just brutally honest, candid, told what was on his mind. I, I really like to cover Odell. I mean, I know um, he's another really super polarizing guy. Mm-hmm. And but you talk to people around him, they never really had bad things to say about him. It was always sort of the outside perception of, oh, he's a distraction. He's this and that. But when you were around him, you spoke to him, he was an intelligent guy. Like he can i you will know, put it this way—he can't help himself. But he's his own worst enemy sometimes. He does stuff that you know, whether the national championship game with the money to players, like he's all putting himself in the public eye a lot of times in ways that aren't smart, reflect poorly on him. But the thing that's almost more. Puzzling about it, he's not like a dumb guy. Like, you see him do some dumb things, but talk to him, and he's a very intelligent person. Um, and and you know, he, But he was just, you know, he's like, you know, you always like to cover stars because people are interested in him. So, mm-hmm. uh, But stars can be jerks. So I, and I just didn't feel like he was. I didn't feel like the perception of him matched up um, to what my interactions were with him. I mean, look, he could be moody, um, and there were some days he was good, some days he was bad. And, um, but I thought, on the whole, he was a very interesting guy to cover. Um and then I mean I don't want to go through the whole, but there's a lot of guys beyond that, just like the everyday guys. They're just really good, solid people. Um, you know, you like guys who you can just have a conversation with. It's not always about football. I was a kid, like that. and um, there's plenty of guys like that. Um, you know, you got 53 guys in the locker rooms. So you kind of have all levels. You got the 20 million dollars superstar, on to the you know undrafted free agents. So there's you know all, all all walks of life are kind of represented. And there's definitely a lot of good you know just down to earth guys. But as far as like two bigger name guys. Um, they, they stand out as some of the more interesting ones and, and more entertaining ones that I've got to cover.
3: Great.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, talking to people about college other than football is so important. And I especially like the articles that don't really talk about the game that's going on, but more like a personal life story or maybe something happened as a child and it's now coming back up. How do you feel about writing those stories that aren't necessarily about a guy who had two touchdowns, but it's more about his personal life? Do you enjoy those more than the game? How is that balance?
1: Yeah, I mean, balance is probably a good word because, you know, you don't want to be sitting there writing about all, you know, heartfelt stories when, like, you still got to cover the games and, and cover who's playing well. But, no, I I definitely try to uh, mix those in as much as possible, and it's interesting. A lot of times the comments are like, oh, it's, like, so cool to see, like, this human side of them. It's like, I think a lot of times it's easy to just look at them as, like, they're football players, uh, and then you realize, no, there's a, a lot of them have a lot more going on uh, behind the scenes, and so when you get a guy to open up and and talk about that stuff. That's always uh, very interesting and definitely something I like to do. And, and that even comes from all the conversations you have off the record where they just get to trust you. You get to know each other. Um, I wrote a story last year, uh, Eli Penny, the, the fullback, yep. two members murdered in a one week span out in LA wow. and he, I had no idea that happened, but he just made a comment one time that he have to go home for, uh, you know, some family situation. We have a pretty relationship. And just you know, he kind of mentioned what happened, and then I was like, "Well, that's like an unbelievable story." If you want to talk, but at the, same, at the time we we're just talking, you know, man to man. Like it wasn't with a reporter on, and he was like, "Sure." And then so he really opened up and and talked about his you know upbringing in South Central LA, and you know, having family members uh, murdered and stuff. It was it was really um, heavy stuff, but it was it was great to be able to tell his story and you know all that he's overcome. And, um, so, yeah, those types of stories are great when the opportunity presents, but there are times where, hey, like, say when Barkley rushes for 2,000 yards or whatever, you know, you got to just write that, too. Like, you can just write about the football park too. You don't want to go
2: too overboard. So, like I said,
1: the, the balance uh, aspect of your question definitely applies.
2: Um, and we see in the locker rooms a lot, especially around superstars, there's that big horde of, you know, microphones and notebooks and reporters. How can you sit down with a player in those media sessions when they only talk two to three times a week, where you can have that personal conversation, or is it a group conversation with a bunch of reporters? How does that work?
1: Well, it's funny. Uh, I'm fortunate at the Athletic where I don't have to like go to Saquon Barkley's weekly press conference and just report whatever he says because I mean that's how it was with Odell. Like anything he said was news, and mm-hmm. I used to to com where it's a little more click driven. So I had to. Odell said this. That's my story. I'm, you know, I'm looking for kind of different angles at the Athletics. So in some ways, those scrum are the because while 30 reporters are crowded around Saquon's locker, I can peel off and go talk to Sterling Shepard or I call oh, Daniel Jones is over there. Let me just run and grab him and ask him a question or just shoot the breeze with them. So I actually use that to my advantage. I love when there's big scrum. I mean, again, there's there are times where and maybe as the team is better, I've covered about the athletic for two seasons. they are not very good. When they get better in the games, you know the stakes are higher for the games. I might need to be at Saquon's because what he says might still be the biggest story of the day. Well, the team isn't doing that well. um, You know, you're not really covering the X's and O's in November of a two and nine team. So yeah, I would use that time when there's a big scrum going on to sort of work the peripheral. But you can't lose sight of like people still want to hear about Saquon more than they want to hear about you know the you know the backup left tackle or whatever. So as much as those heart you know human interest stories might be great, you still need to you know cover the stars. So yeah, you have to pick your spots. I, I'll go to Saquon, maybe ask a question or two, just so you see my face and hear my voice. And then later in the week, you see him pass through the locker room, you like, he hey, you got a minute for this. So it's it's definitely harder to develop relationships with those guys who are just, because I might be saying, oh, I'm going to get them later in the week to ask him one question. Well, 10 other people want to do the same thing. So for him, it's not one question, it's 10 questions. So like you have to pick your spots. And you don't want It's kind of a fine line of, of developing those relationships and uh, I think it's really helpful to get to see them outside the locker room, whatever that is, they have a camp, they do a you know a, a public relations appearance, whatever it is, try to get to as many of those too because that's the time where A, they'll recognize, oh, wow, you went out of your way to come to this, and B, it's a little more relaxed setting and there's not 10 other reporters uh, lining up to ask them one question and you might be like, oh, God, I don't want to sit here and go through another media scrum. So, uh, but, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I think it's a big part of you know navigating a locker room, a big part of being a B reporter. So,
3: I mean, you've mentioned Saquon Barkley so much because he's not all of a sudden become the guy for the Giants. But, you know, with Eli retiring and Odell being shipped to Cleveland, he has become that guy that Giants fans want to hear. And this is a very young team. I mean, there's, a, there's, what, maybe one or two players over the age of 30 on the roster. And for you, since you've covered this team so in depth, you know, going through really the entire 53-man roster or right now, a 90-man roster – um, what, what were your first impressions of the Giants draft, you know, this year? I mean, in the, in the, in the uh, voids that they needed to fill from Andrew Thomas, Xavier McKinney, Matt Pert, who, you know, is from UConn and we're from Connecticut, and then Darnay Holmes in the fourth round. What do you think of some of those young guys who the Giants are bringing into already a very young team and what Giants fans should look out for with these guys uh, whenever we're back on uh, seeing them live on TV?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think Thomas, it was kind of like flip a coin. I mean, you, you talked to a million different people before the draft and they had a different order of those top four guys. You know, uh, everyone had their personal taste. But, um, you know, I think the thing you heard a lot with him is he's like the most NFL ready, obviously schooled in the SEC. Um, so, like, you know, you can't fault that pick. I and mean, he's left tackled by trade. There's no projecting there. So, I think it made a lot of sense because, listen, they certainly need to address the tackle position. Um, you know, Nate Solder you know, wasn't the answer. And even if he was, he's getting up there, so they, they need to have yep. someone in the pipeline. So, as much as some, you know, a lot of fans want Isaiah Simmons, and listen, if he turns out to be as good as everyone thinks, you know, maybe they look back and regret that. But I think the position they're in, you got Daniel Jones, you got Saquon, they needed to address the offensive line. And uh, so again, if it's Thomas better than Mekhi Becton and better than Tristan Wirfs, I, I don't know. We'll find, that'll be determined. Mm-hmm. But I think it totally made sense to get a tackle there. You have to believe that he'll be ready to step in. Uh, from day one because if he can't beat out like a Nick Gates or Camp Fleming, that that's not a great sign. So I think you have to count on him uh, being ready from day one. Uh, McKinney, you know, you, you hear from them that they thought he was a first-round pick and they considered a steal. I mean, listen, it's a spot where he can certainly step right in. They didn't really have much uh, that safety spot next to Peppers, so you have to feel good about his chance of contributing from day one. I think with Parrott, they're uh, definitely looking at him as a developmental guy. I'm very surprised. if He, he might not see the field all season, and that's fine, because you have Solder, you have Thomas, you'd have, you can have Cam Fleming. Um, you yeah. so can take a year behind the scenes, and then Holmes is another guy, I think, can definitely step right in. That, that slot corner uh, spot has been a weakness for a couple of years now. So I, I think you could definitely have three of your top four picks, You know, if not starting you know, with Holmes playing big roles. And then anything beyond that, it's really, you know, you're just hoping someone sticks out. I know I was really excited about the guard, Lemieux, in the fifth round. I mean, we'll see. I mean, yeah, I get it. Like, it, it, he played a lot of good school and has, you know, gotten a lot of good reviews. But how often do fifth-round picks really pan out? I mean, got they might have got pretty lucky last year with, with Slayton and Conley he looked like pretty good fifth-round pick. So if they, if they, if they ever run on fifth-round picks, they really be ahead of the game. So uh, I think he's another guy like like Parrot, though, who would be more, like, down the line. I mean, Zayler and Hernandez are there. I don't think Lemieux will be the starting center this year, but you know, you never know. In a year or two, maybe he steps in and, and they they found something there. Because listen, this team's had a long run of missing on draft picks. If they can start to hit on some of these these guys, uh, certainly would help turn the tide. Definitely,
0: for sure. I wanted to end it off with more of a journalism question. You know, you work for the Athletic right now, and we all hear and we all read the Athletic and how big of a newspaper it's come, it's began. You know, you started at NJ.com. You talked about how you got to be more of a clickbait kind of guy because you're not at a national platform like The Athletic is. Just talk about how you've transitioned. Now you're two years with the Giants and the newspaper, how big it's become and how great it is for you to work on such a platform.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was fortunate when it kind of came around, it did. Um, you, know, I was, uh, you know, I was looking to see what else might be out there and, and The Athletic came around and it was definitely a place that I think a lot of journalists wanted to work. And uh, I was fortunate that they, you know, there wasn't like an application process, an interview process. They sort of targeted who they wanted. So, um, you know, they, they had their eyes on me for whatever reason, and I was happy to, uh, to answer the call. And Yeah, it's been great. I, mean, I just passed my two-year anniversary there. And, uh, yeah, like, it felt a little bit during the interview process. It was, like, a little too good to be true. But, you know, two years in, it's definitely lived up to what I expected. Like I said, I don't have to just Odell oh, said this. i got to run something, you know, write something about it just and. And just like and you know, clickbait I'm almost too strong a to term. Because listen, at the end of the day, if you work at a site that is based on advertising, you need to produce stuff that people want to read. Like that's just the nature of the business. I mean, you can obviously go too far with it, and be like the clickbait. But it's just, I mean, if you're working at engine.com, you have to produce three or four stories a day because their whole model is built around people clicking and getting advertisers, uh, you know, eye- eyeballs for advertisers. So at the Athletic, we don't, you know, we don't have that. It's obviously much more you know quality driven, which course if anyone wants to work at a place like where that's the case and um yeah it's been great i mean i've had a lot more freedom to, to kind of do this type of stories i want to do not have that same pressure to again have to just run with the, whatever quote was said at the podium or anything like that i get the time to like sink my teeth into story ideas so yeah i mean it's been great and obviously um the whole media world is kind of in a little bit of a, a tough spot right now so let's hope i it's going back because in some ways we're fortunate that we're not reliant on advertising dollars, but people are still having to dig in their pocket to pay subscription fees. So, we, you know, the longer we go with our game, it's not going to be good for anybody. So I mm-hmm. um, hope we get, you know, get games to cover again real soon and then that way the Athletic can kind of continue the trajectory it's been on.
2: Well, I've certainly enjoyed, uh, well, I've currently enjoyed talking to you as you are someone who digs deeper than the game. Um, you also look at the game, but you also dig deeper and you're really in the mecca of media and sports in New York, so I've certainly enjoyed talking to you and learning more about the journalism industry, especially in New York.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, it was fun to doing this. You know, I hope uh, hope you guys picked up some little nuggets along the way. You know, a lot of people helped me when I was your age starting out, so hopefully I can kind of pay it forward and hopefully help you guys out as you make your uh, make your own trail. We appreciate. It.
0: Yes, thank you so much. It's been an honor and really. Just thank you again. I mean, it was great to hear all the notes. And through all, all of our episodes, we've had guests. And really, to be honest, you've been our best one with advice. So really, mm-hmm. just thank you one more time. And it's been Beyond the West Hill episode 14. Joan Pescatore, Ian Nicholas, Portland Parrott, and Dan Duggan. Thank you guys for watching.